You're listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. Welcome back to another episode on the Neighbors and Nations podcast. I'm Todd Stiles, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode, I'll be interviewing a pastor who just serves a few miles away from us here at First Family, Phil Winfield. He's the pastor of Grace Church in Des Moines. He's been there for several years. And what I think is very unique about Phil's perspective is Phil was a former missionary in Peru, actually sent out by Grace Church, spent several years there, was called back to serve as their pastor and is doing that now. And he brings a unique a unique bit of insight, shall we say, a unique set of skills to both pastoring and to understanding pastoring because of his experience in both nation contexts and neighbor contexts. And I think you'll find this interview quite helpful, not only as a church member, but as a church leader, as Phil shares, yes, some of his joyful, memorable moments, and yet also some of those very difficult moments, both on the mission field and in the pastorate. I think you'll be pleasantly and in some ways shockingly surprised at what he considers to be some of his more memorable days. And so I'm excited for you to hear this interview with a pastor who served in the same metro area as me, Phil Winfield. Enjoy this on this episode of Neighbors and Nations. Welcome back to our podcast today. It's a privilege to have Pastor Phil Winfield with me, who is uniquely qualified for this podcast in the sense that he has been someone who's been on the nation side and someone who's now on the neighbor side. He's lead, uh, he's senior pastor at Grace Church here in Des Moines. Phil, welcome to our podcast. Glad you're here. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Todd. It's a privilege. Uh, I hope so, and I know it is uh, for you. And thanks for being willing to talk to us about neighbors and nations. As I alluded to in that brief intro, you, um, you've you done both roles. So you've been missionary and you've been pastor. So before we talk about those differences, maybe just give us a brief, kind of catch us up on how you've been both of those. Yeah, um, I have a lifelong, uh, at least since college, relationship with uh, Pastor David Nelms. And um, we were together in college, and he said, one day I'm going to call you to come help me do something. And I said, hey, you know, don't forget me. And so sure enough, as I was getting close to graduation, he asked me to come join him in a little town on the eastern shore of Maryland called Chestertown. We spent five years together there, saw a church grow up in a cornfield, amazing church, to be honest, probably the most amazing I've seen yet. Hmm. And um, But uh, there was only 3,400 people in the town, and not more than just a few thousand in the entire county. And uh, when we had knocked on the doors of that town several times personally, we said, you know, maybe we could go to a little bigger, bigger location. The Lord began to work. I came uh, out here to Iowa in 1984, uh, 84, 85, I'm not remembering exactly, but uh, spent five years here, saw the church grow quite a lot. And uh, just since the call, uh, going all the way back to when I was 15 years old, since the call to missions uh, and uh, at our own missionary conference that I was running and hosting, uh, the Lord just laid his hand on me, made it clear that, you know, if you want a missionary movement in your church, maybe you better set the example. Wow, that's uh, 
that's a compelling truth right there, isn't it? That probably sticks with you even now, now that you're back pastoring, right? If you yes, want to see it happen, you got to set the example. Yeah, it does. It does set the example. And uh, if I preach on missions, teach on missions, or uh, I mean, not as a subject, but as it comes up in the scriptures, um, then, you know, it's helpful to say, been there, done that, gave myself to it, and would probably still be there if the church had not called me back. So the same church that sent you is the same church that called you back to be its pastor. That is correct. Yes. That's pretty awesome. So uh, before I go back to the 15-year-old experience when God called you, so you left pastoring here. Uh, God spoke to you in the middle of the conference you were leading, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and he sent you where, and what did you do then? I ended up going to Peru in South America, Lima, Peru. My original thought had been Korea because um, earlier in my ministry, I'd met a man named F.C. Lassiter. Uh, a tremendous influence on my life uh, who had been serving in Korea. And he said that there was a need, but by the time it got around to, you know, actually um, contemplating missions, um, I, um, Korea was sending missionaries out. In other words, Korea has Korea and South Korea, I'm speaking of, um, has, uh, has been evangelized to a greater degree than many places in the world. And so um, I, in the process of our mission conference, some, someone was at the conference who had recently been to Peru, and that name Peru wasn't even on my radar. I couldn't have found it on the map, you know, uh, but just uh, God just somehow opened my eyes to it, opened my heart to it, and got me thinking about it. And so uh, we looked into it and began to pray, and then before you know it, you know, everything you see, everybody you talk to, somehow Peru starts coming up in all your conversations. So that's kind of how it happened. You use the word, use the pronoun we. So who was the we there? We, my wife and I were praying and we, she very much was very open to uh, being a missionary as well. Having met uh, Granny Turnbull, I don't know if you ever heard that name before. I she haven't, was a missionary no. in Haiti. And even when she was six or seven years old, had hosted her in her home. And, um, and so just always had it in the back of her mind that, you know, someday God might let her have the privilege of being a missionary like Granny Turnbull was. Wow. And so it was you and your wife. Did you have some children then? Yeah, we had all three of our children by that time. Uh, when we left to go to Peru, the oldest was uh, nine and then nine, seven, and six. Or, yeah, nine, seven, and six was the ages whenever we actually went to Peru. So you left here with children in those really formative years. Yes, indeed. They they had by far and far and away their education and their upbringing, and uh, I'll even go so far as to say their worldview was developed uh, outside of the United States. Talk to us as a parent as well as a pastor and missionary. Good experience with your children there. Uh, difficult in a negative way or more like very positive. Talk to us about that a little bit. You know, um, I had heard a lot of horror stories, you know, through the years about missionaries and their kids, especially their teenagers. We felt that the time to go was right for us. They were old enough to be obviously healthy. You know what I'm saying? We weren't going to have a lot of health difficulties with them. It was obvious they were healthy children, but they were not uh, in that, you know, in that situation where they were in high school. They had, you know, strong connections with a group of people. I mean, they, they had a lot of little friends and everything, but, but it was a we, I'll use that word again, a we, we're going to go be missionaries in Peru. And even in our presentation, I let the children talk. 
think it had a lot to do with um, our success in raising the money to go there. But our experience with the children there was, uh, you know, there were difficult moments. There was times they missed grandma and grandpa. They missed Thanksgiving and Christmas. But overwhelmingly, it was positive. Uh, they, they, they all take every chance they can to go back to Peru with me even now. That's if great. They, if they can work it out. They love to go. They have friends that, that they still go back and forth with in Peru. So, and missionary friends who are from other mission organizations and so on. That's really great to hear. You know, I, I'd love for you to comment on this. I have this opinion that in raising children, sometimes it can get very like recipe or formulaic or ritualistic, and we try to protect and um, engineer it based on the culture. And yet often what kids are looking for, even at young ages, is a transcendent cause that they see and they live. And I think that's one reason we hear so many positive stories from missionary families that their kids were tapping into something way bigger than themselves and it changed their life early as opposed to perhaps the American culture where you feel like you're being pushed to this American dream that at the bottom of that's probably an, an empty well, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. sometimes we have this fear of other cultures and missionary life when really that may be the very thing that stirs within a kid, the passion to live life to its fullest. What do you think about some of that? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think that, you know, we, we are recipe oriented and we are in the United States. We have a, even among Christians, you know, we have a thought of how their life should progress and, and what experiences they need and what, um, you know, what are those elements that need to be added to them in order to be successful? You know, we got that. We want them to be mm -hmm. successful. Yes, we want them to be Christian. We want them to be fruitful and everything. But it's very difficult. It's very difficult in the United States to not blur the lines between success and being a uh, being a competent and successful Christian, because, you know, being a successful Christian may not always mean you're the top of the heap. You're the boss of the you're the boss of the place. You have lots of money. May not always be that, but you can be a successful Christian even in those even in those processes. Um, so you know, our our kids, um, they certainly when they came home, they graduated high school, came and went to college. They they felt some awkwardness, of course, because they had they they weren't up on the styles, they weren't up on the jargon. They you know they didn't know the TV shows, they didn't know all of that stuff. Um, so there, there was some awkwardness, but then on the other hand, they were pretty uh, quick to, they're pretty quick to see, uh, I'll call it, I'll call it some of the vanity and some of the, um, some of the goals and in, in the goals and values in American life that just really didn't match up with, with being, being a Christian, being a follower of Christ. And, uh, you know, they, they'd seen, you know, seen hunger, seen sickness, seen extreme poverty, They'd seen wealth as well, I and mean, they'd seen the contrast uh, in Peru, uh, and um, and then I guess the involvement in ministry because when you're a missionary, you know, <laughs> you, your children are you know like like little associate pastors, you know, in many ways sometimes because <laughs> they uh, they they get it, they understand, and uh, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like you know uh, they were little preachers and all that. I mean, they were kids. We had fun, um, and uh, but. I remember uh, my daughter, one of my daughters saying one time when somebody says, well, we're just so sorry you missed so much uh, when you were out of the country. And she said, yep, I missed a lot. I missed developing a thirst for for style and a thirst for for the latest, uh, you know, the, the latest uh, fashions. And I missed uh, I missed out on a hunger for 
you know, she started naming a lot of things. She said, but here's what I didn't miss. I didn't miss going to the mountains. I didn't miss going kayaking. I didn't miss going to the ocean. I didn't miss, you know, I didn't miss a lot of those things, you know, and I certainly didn't miss seeing many, many, many people come to Christ. So I mean, that was her answer. Wow. You know? <laughs> That's special. So she man. had a different perspective. She missed a lot, but there's a lot of, a lot of things you miss by not being available for something like that. Yeah, I bet that story holds a special place in your heart. That's really good to hear. Yeah, it does. Hey, uh, let's go back to when you were 15. I'm curious. I don't know this and never heard your story yet. Yeah. Tell us about when you were 15, you said that God really spoke to you and, and uh, revealed himself in a way that you sensed a calling. Was it into min, uh, missionary service or pastoral ministry or talk, talk us through that? Yes. And both. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I was raised in a, I wasn't raised in a perfect home, but I was raised in a, in a home where mom and dad were consistent and we went to church and my dad loved missions. And my dad, uh, he, I, I went to Mexico with my dad on three mission trips. I was the only kid. Uh, he went, and one time it was all a bunch of older men. And another time it was with 19 nurses from a college of nursing in Memphis. Uh, another time it was with my mom actually went and my brother and some others. And we, so my dad, he loved to go and he would just help any way he could. He was a tremendous mechanic. He could build things. And so, but there were always evening meetings, you know, and, uh, oh, we met up with the 11th hour missionary crusade out of uh, McAllen, Texas. Uh, that was the name of it. And so uh, mission stuff just started rising in my mind when I was a little boy. Well, I went away to a Bible camp when I was 15 years old. And the guy that preached was a very strange name for a pastor. I can still remember his name was Estes Perkle. And uh, he was the preacher. He preached from one verse of scripture for the entire week. He preached all week long in the evening from Psalm 119, verse 89, which says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That verse gripped my heart. That, that was it. There's the, you know, if, if you want to give yourself to something that's worthwhile, give yourself to something that is eternal, that's not going to change, it's not going to go away. And he just challenged us, you know, give yourself to the word of God, both to the reading of it, the study of it, and maybe God wants you to preach it. Well, when he said that, you know, when he said, maybe God wants you to preach it, maybe he wants you to take it to a foreign land. I said, yes, and yes, if the Lord will have me, I will do it. I was the, uh, the first one, he didn't give any kind of an invitation or altar call or any of those things. And Todd, you grew up in the South. You know what I'm talking about. It was a, one of those meetings where everybody comes down front and does something, you know, back in those days. And well, I was the first one down there and uh, I was a little bitty skinny. I mean, I'm not so skinny anymore, but I was a little bitty runt of a kid at that time. And man, they just, there were some other guys that came to big old strapping boys and and they were sticking the mics in front of all of them. And they finally got around to me, stuck the mics. Says, what is it God's calling you to do? And I said, well, God may want me to be a missionary or he may want me to be a pastor, but I'm saying yes to either one. And that was, that was it. And from then on, I never looked back. Wow. That's a very, and I use this word appropriately, very prophetic because you've been both of those. Yeah, I didn't know it would be both. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a great story too, Phil. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, it's amazing what God does in the lives of us when we're young. Yeah, I, my kids learned a song uh, that they sang when uh, we were on the mission field. It was called "I Came to Know You Early." I came to know you young, and I, that still rings in my in my head of um, the the blessings of coming to know the Lord young. Mm -hmm, for sure. And yeah. um, so, tell me a little bit about 
the differences between being a pastor, which you were before you went to the field and now after you're home from the field, the difference between being a pastor and being a missionary? You know, I, I think one of the things that was the most helpful to me, and I'm going to answer your question with a little something that you didn't ask. One of the most helpful things to me was having been a pastor and then going to be a missionary, because I understood at that time, by the time I went, I went at my 10 year, I was 10 years in the ministry before I went. So I had a full 10 years in the ministry. And so um, I went then to the, to the mission field, and I had in my mind a general idea of what is necessary to make disciples and have a church. In other words, I had some general idea of what it took. So when I got there, I mean, I was, I had, there were many missionaries that were right out of college and so on like that. And, and they, you know, they were trying to find their way. They had never really had lots of ministry experience. And so no sooner did I get there, I became kind of the person that they were coming to, to say, how should I do this? And how should I do that? So that question, the answer is there are many, many similarities to being a missionary and being a pastor in the United States. The objective is make disciples, you know, that's the great call. And so when you make disciples, it both brings blessings and causes problems, you know, and we can say that here, you know, I mean, in the States, if you start making disciples and make a few and then they make a few well pretty soon you got to have somewhere to meet you need somewhere to baptize and uh oh they have children so we've got to figure out so in other words making disciples causes problems but of course it is the great blessing because as the book of acts would uh, put it the word of god begins to grow and it begins to multiply and the influence begins to happen as far as the actual activity the uh, and to our shame i'm going to be real honest and, uh, and, you know, maybe confessional here. In the United States, we tend to be too methodological. We tend to be too program-oriented. We tend to think if we can just get the right system, uh, if we can just, uh, if we can get everything, you know, we think in terms of production. When uh, in Peru, when I went there, I knew that if I was going to leave anything, if there was, if I, if I didn't know, you know, when you go, you don't know how long you're going to be there. You don't know what the, you know, right now they're, they're having a COVID-19 explosion there and you can't even go out of your house. And so you don't know what the situations are going to be. So making disciples one at a time and spending time with them, training them was primary. That was the most important effort that I gave in Peru. And I can report that there are, as a result, there are many churches that have been planted. There are three or four long-term ministries, several of which I still am involved in. I don't, I don't, I'm not the leader of any of them, but I'm involved, help promote. Uh, and because there were some, there were some people who became true disciples and were able to disciple other people. And uh, in the States, uh, you know, the difference would be is we tend, and it's, it's, it's just, it's our system, but we tend to think, Let's let's program it. Let's plan it. Let's get a system. Let's get people plugged into it. And we'll just start churning people out. I just think we're missing something on the relational level of not sitting and making decide. And if I miss anything as a pastor in the States, if I miss anything, I miss the individual conversions with people to the degree that I had there and the individual walking the steps with them. I find myself we're doing way too much administration, way too much planning. Does that make sense? It does. It's actually a very refreshing answer to hear you kind of cut through the noise and just say, you know, 
at least for your experience in Peru, there wasn't this pursuit of a programmatic um, type of production. Um, and that's just a real honest uh, assessment from your experience. I appreciate it. It's very refreshing to hear you be that honest with us. Um, so was it hard to come back then? Oh, it was the the hardest decision in my life. Wow. Um, I mean, after my salvation decision, which was easy, because when I understood it, I, I couldn't think of any other thing, but that's what I wanted. Getting married, finding the right woman in life, and God brought her to me. But then um, it, it was extremely difficult. It was hard to go to Peru because of the unknown. But once I knew it and saw what was going on, we were we were very, very, let's just say we were at the height of our uh, blessing and fruitfulness at the time that the church called. And to be honest, I ignored them for about nine months. It took them nine months to even get me to consider talking to them. And I just couldn't understand it, you know, because I felt, you know, I'm being honest. I felt, you know, a church like Grace Church, which God had blessed and there were, you know, good, good things happening. I felt like there would be people lining up that would love to be the pastor of that church, but I didn't think people would be lining up to go to Peru to take my place. Hmm. It was a hard decision. Very, very hard decision. In retrospect, God has blessed it. And, uh, and I understand it better now than I did at the point of making it. Can I ask you this question? What um, swung you or what tipped you over the edge then in that decision? Can I ask that? And you don't have to share if you don't want to, but something that difficult as you even, you know, tried to avoid almost for nine months. What was it that kind of nudged you? Well, I finally uh, got three people together that were, you know, people of my, uh, you know, everybody has their little group of counselors, you know, everybody has their group of, of confidants. At least they should. Everybody should, I think. You know, godly men. One of them was my mission director. And I, you know, I thought I would stack the deck. You know, I'd get some people to give me some counsel and say, all right, you stay put, don't you go anywhere, you stay right here, you know. I talked to my mission director, uh, Roy Seals, I think you know Roy, and uh, I talked and uh, just sure that he'd say, oh no, Phil, this, you know, God's blessing, you need to be, <laughs> stay right where you are, and uh, and then I talked to um, a co-worker who was from England, his name's David Barnes, a godly, godly man, He's got a huge ministry himself right now, bigger than anything I ever had, but he was uh, co-working with me in church planning there, and he was just godly, and uh, I couldn't imagine him saying, you know, go back to the States and consider doing this. I asked him about it, uh, and then I asked Tom Pace. Uh, Tom Pace uh, was my mentor in Peru in missions, talking with, uh, I, I said, all right, I'm going to line these three people up and I'm going to tell them what the story is and what's happening. We'll just see what they have to say. And without fail, all three of them said, you know, this is, uh, this, this is so unusual that they would ask you to stop what you're doing and come back. This is the only thing we can think of is God must be trying to do something. So at least because of the support. And of course, the church, the church supported me very well as a missionary. More than half of my support came from this single church. And, um, and so uh, I felt obligated to come and at least talk to them. And I was very nervous in the process, you know, very, there wasn't any, wow, I'm coming home a conqueror, you know, it was more like I was sheepishly coming to talk to some people about, about something I wasn't certain about. And so that's how that all happened. Hmm. Well, I'm sure glad that God's will prevailed. Uh, you've been good for our city, 
been good for Grace Church. And I think it's extremely special that a church would send one of its own, see God do a work in Peru, and then call that very person back to pastor in his church. That's um, more than unique. It's uh, obviously sovereign. So, Phil, that's just a wonderful story to hear. Uh, A couple of specific things I want to ask you about in regards to Peru. Um, Does the Andes blanket, is that still going on? And if so, uh, explain the project, maybe even how some folks could hear about it and help or go. I'm not sure if it's still going on, but I was really intrigued by the concept. The Andean blanket uh, was a, it's not going on in the same form. I'll give you a short answer first. It is not going on in the same form that it was, although the, the purpose and goal is still there. What the Andean blanket had for a mission statement was to take the Bible where the road doesn't go in the Andes region of South America and, of course, beginning in Peru. So in 1997, uh, we had uh, 27 men come and join us for um, for a trip where we, you know, we loaded up burrows and we loaded up horses and we got backpacks and you know, we had trucks drop us off at the end of the road. And then we just, we just had a guide that, and also somebody that I mentored and discipled in the Lord, uh, who was a Quechuan. And um, he now is a missionary along with his wife and they're, they're tremendous American wife. He married, they're tremendous, tremendous missionaries. But um, he began to, he plotted out the valley, the wireless Valley. And we began to go village to village and we would come to town and and uh, we would set up our tents and everything, and then we would have meetings in the evening, and we would hold show the Jesus film. We would distribute whatever materials. There were not full Bibles in Quechua at that time, so we were giving out comic book strip Gospels of John and whatever we could get our hands on. And so, uh, but as time went on, we teamed up with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Peru. It's called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And uh, we teamed up. They began to translate. And every time we would go back for another trip, they'd have a little more. Well, uh, through the years, we would go to these villages. And we just, you know, we'd walk and walk and trek. And I've passed over mountain <laughs> mountain passes on foot at 16,500 feet. So it was amazing. But we would go to these villages and uh, we'd just stop them, whatever they're doing. We'd see people in the middle of their field walking behind their oxen, plowing. And we'd go over and give them materials. And we'd preach at the crossroads and so on. Well, um, as time progressed, Peru really got on the map uh, economically. And uh, it, it's just not to say there's places where the road doesn't go, they still exist, but it is highly developed. Uh, places where there was not electricity or running water, now there's cities and businesses. So wow, okay. uh, we, still, we, we still go, but we don't trek and we don't sleep in tents and we don't use burrows anymore. We, we tend to go to the villages and we'll stay in hostels. And then we, we just get up and do, we do day trips and we'll go into the, to take vans and things like that and go into the villages. And we do the exact same thing, but we're probably more effective because we go, we go faster, get places quicker. Uh, and, uh, and so we're still doing it. We're just not calling it the Andean blanket anymore. It's the vestiges of the Andean blanket, but it's very effective. Let me tell you how effective. When we began this project in 1997, according to Adelit Yannick, who is the missionary I was telling you about, they only knew in an area of about 500,000 people in this valley, they only knew of 20 churches where you might accidentally hear a gospel message. 
This last year, I went to Peru and I preached the dedication of the full Quechua Bible for two valleys. The, the Quechua, it, it varies from valley to valley. So they actually have to have a translation because of the topography, the, the, the language varies. And so I did, a, I did a, um, a dedication and thousands upon thousands of people came for hundreds of miles getting there any way they could to be a part of that dedication. And you should have seen the rejoicing. One of the ladies that was on the committee that was a part of the, the organizer stood up and held a Bible up. And she said, we've heard about Abraham and Isaac. We've heard about Noah and the flood. We've heard how Balaam's ass could talk. He said, and the missionaries have told us, he says, but now we can read it for ourselves. So wow, that's it, was, it was something. That's super. Well, is the Indian blanket, even the current revision of it, is that available to folks who might want to go with you? Or is that just a Grace Church trip only? No, no. It's, you know, I, I just, I was just on a, on a, con, on a meeting just this, this week with five uh, wonderful friends from the East Coast, Afro-American guys that, uh, that had visited me in Peru that, uh, man, they're all charged up. They want to join us. No, we, folks can go. We ask that they be believers. You know, we, sure. we, we don't want to, we don't want to, we're not trying to make it a missionary trip to the people going, but rather those that are going to help us distribute the Bibles. And, and uh, there's a lot of sacrifice involved because it's not cheap. You know, so sure. Is there a website that someone could go to to hear more about this project? The, the best thing to do is to write me at gracehome.com. The website that I had up for years, um, it, it just it had loads of pictures and stories and everything, but it was unattended. Uh, the person that was in charge of it died, and uh, and so uh, we, you know, we're not we haven't put that up. But I need to I need to get that you know reinvigorated. But uh, right now, the best thing to do is just write. Do you it's mind just, sharing your email address? Yeah, no problem. It's pwinfield at gracehome.com. P-Winfield, W-I-N-F-I-E-L-D, at gracehome.com. I think that's important because, I, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to stir within listeners, uh, you know, uh, a deeper awareness of and a commitment to missions. And just hearing your experience in both these worlds, uh, and then even as you're still involved in trips, uh, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a platform for folks to see it firsthand from someone yeah. who's lived both sides. Hey, talk to me a bit also about mission trips. I, I get the sense you're probably a big fan of them. You went on them as a kid. Uh, you went last year. I mean, how do yeah, they I've, affect I've, people in your church? I have personally, you know, there's been very few years, even since I've been back from Peru, very few years that I haven't taken at least one, maybe two trips. Now I go other places as well. I've gone to Africa. I think I've been to the same place that you go and teach over there. And I've been to, I've been to several other places, but uh, Peru is on my heart still. And uh, you know, I, I know, I know how to do it there, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And so, yes, I do take trips and do I believe in them? Yes, I, I do believe in them, but I, I'm not a fan of missionary tourism. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but there's, there's uh, there's groups of people sometimes that whatever trip is up wherever it's going they they just sign up because they'd like to go to that place and experience that and see that culture and so on, but I I would you know we we would like people to have it in their heart to go and minister and be blessed uh, because you know we go to bless we go with a desire to be a blessing to the people 
but the testimony is always, you know, I went to help, but I was the one that got the most help. I went to yeah. give blessing, <laughs> but I was the one that got the biggest blessing. And that's true. And so, uh, yes, um, we, I, I'm a believer in the trips. Uh, I think that, uh, but I will say this. Um, I, I am, I, I think that missionary trips need to be very, very well planned to work in conjunction with people who are on the ground long-term. What I mean by that is either you, you're working with an established national network or national pastors or with a missionary who is working with that. I wouldn't even just go with a missionary who has no connections, but a missionary who has long term connections with nationals, because, again, you want to you want to uh, you want to make your contribution to something that's enduring. And so. Uh, you know, I, I've never failed when I was living in Peru and whenever they got a wind of the ministry that we had, I had endless people asked to bring groups down and I would ask them what they had in mind. And because I wanted to hear what their goals were. And many times it was, well, we just want some exposure, like our people to see this, that, and the other. And, uh, and I could tell really quickly, you know, what, it, what, what their goals were. And I turned down, I turned down at least four out of five people that were coming. So, um, but I did host a whole lot of groups, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, it was, it was a, it was a wonderful, and I can, I can, I can share that, um, that a number of, uh, men and women who came to see us in Peru, who have both gone on the, the Andean blanket trek and also came to see us for other ministry purposes. We had a huge tent evangelism and church planning movement, uh, that I had numerous churches come to. That they that in the in the in the context of ten days they saw an area be opened up, a piece of property purchased, an evangelism campaign campaign operate in conjunction with the seminary where I taught with students, and they would see a church left in operation when they would leave after ten days, and it was phenomenal. There was one particular one in a place called Flatland. Yanavia, it means flatland, and uh, it was a it was a tough area. But man, we went into that church is still going. It's the Berean Baptist Church of Flatland, Peru. <laughs> and, wow, and they're still going, you know. So all in ten happened. days, ten days. Yep. Now I can't do that now. I'm not there. Don't have the connections. But but uh, that was it was pretty effective. That's amazing. One more question. I want to just kind of pick your brain on and have you share with our listeners. Um, you mentioned that you had thought about Korea, but as you analyzed that more, you, you, you sensed and saw that there was a greater access in Korea than there may have been in Peru. And so because of that, you chose Peru, essentially. Uh, talk to me a little bit about these two words of access and yet need, because need exists everywhere. And yet parts of the world have very little access. And I think that's a current struggle among some people is you know, should I go to where there's the least access or can I just go where there's any need? And maybe some of your own personal opinion on some of that would be helpful. Well, you know, I'm guided a lot by the book of Acts and how things happened in the book of Acts. You know, Paul, Paul had it as his own custom that he didn't want to build on anybody else's foundation. And, you know, I take that to mean that, look, somebody's working over there, praise God, let them do it. And uh, I'm going to try to go where to the regions beyond you, you know, where the gospel hasn't been preached yet. Well, I mean, that was apostolic times and there was nowhere, I mean, almost anywhere you pointed in the world, they needed they needed a fresh uh, presentation of the gospel because they never heard it. I mean, even Judaism hadn't been everywhere. 
And so, um, however, I, I would put it this way today. Um, uh, you will remember the name when I say Don Sisk. Uh, Don Sisk uh, was the director of the mission that I was associated with when I was on the field. And I heard him say one day, he says, look, let's just quit talking about the need going where there's the need. He says, because the need is the same um, everywhere in the world. The need is for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, there's lost people everywhere. There's, there's uh, people that are misguided, that have no hope. Uh, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. He says, the need is the same. He says, but when we talk in terms of access or we talk in terms of availability, the gospel good news is just not simply as available everywhere in the world. And that had a lot to do with the decision to go to Peru. Now, Peru was a, was a, um, was a largely almost 100% Catholic country when we went there. I won't say that we are, I don't pretend that we were the first ones to go there with a, you know, a clear gospel message. The Christian Missionary Alliance had been there for a number of years and had been very successful. But uh, the Lima, Peru, which, which is what caught my eye, there was 10 million people there in that time. That was 1988 when I first went. And uh, there were 10 million people there. And uh, you, you could have put all of the people in all the churches in one building. And so, you know, the, the need was great, yes, but the availability of gospel preaching was very low. I can honestly say that, that it has grown. You know, many, many churches have been planted, and they're not the same country they were then. Uh, and so there are other places in the world that are more needful. But let me add one more caveat to the whole thing. The, the call of God for particular people has got to be taken into consideration, not just get a map out and find out, you know, where is the greatest perceived need in the world? And Okay, there's no gospel there, therefore I must go there. God has got to be leading and working through his, um, through, uh, through, through the word of God, through the, through the interaction with other people and missionaries, and then how he brings you into contact with the need. Because quite frankly, I can't get passionate about every place on planet earth. I can't, but I can get passionate about the place that God has called me. And, um, you know, the call is to follow a person, not a place, but invariably he will lead us to a place of service. And so we follow Jesus, but he's going to lead us somewhere. And so I would, I would hesitate. I know that the, the big push today is, you know, the 1040 window and the, the places where the Bible hasn't been and all of those kind of things. Well, largely the 1040 window of North Africa, of what is modern day Turkey and all of those, they had the, they had the gospel first. And sometimes we forget that they had it first. And so, you know, I, th I, th I think that's, I'm not against it. I'm for any, I'm for, if a person's called to Istanbul, then they'd be sending to go anywhere else. But if they're called to go to inner Los Angeles, California, and they go anywhere else, then God has a call for every person. And, uh, and I believe, uh, and I don't mean just in the sense of, you know, I know we talk about a call and we think immediately, we think immediately of people for full-time Christian service, like a pastor or missionary. I think every believer ought to have a sense of calling. They ought to have a sense of calling to both their vocation and to their Christian witness in their vocation. So mm. I, I, it's just a little quirky of me, I guess. No, that's really good to hear. And I want to speak on your behalf for a moment to uh, many pastors who listen in, um, especially some young church planters that mm -hmm. we're in connection with that listen in, uh, man, reach out to Phil. He gave you his email address, uh, email him and ask him for 
for some time or just asking for a response and let him kind of walk you through some mission philosophy, let him walk you through what it's like on the field, pastoring here in the States, and maybe how to blend those. Uh, I think you bring a very unique perspective. You've got some unique experiences that can help many young pastors in keeping God's mission front and center in their church. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, any last words on that front? Talk to pastors for a minute. Talk to regular church members. How do we keep God's mission front and center in front of our members so that we're not getting detoured and sidetracked? You know, uh, it is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that outreach and evangelism and missions and all of those things is related to programs, methodology, and I'll even say in the United States, equipment. Uh, we, we, we really like to think in terms of equipment. You know, if we had a better building, a bigger building, a better gym, more space, this, that, and the other. But it, you know, the, I don't know that that, I don't know that that has ever spurred anybody on to greater evangelistic and disciple making efforts. But I mean, the simplicity, the simplicity of a gospel conversation and trying to trying to engage people on a personal level, that simplicity is exactly where Christianity can have its greatest influence. And uh, I think, uh, you know, right now we're afforded a great opportunity. I'm weeping over it. And, uh, and I'm thinking endlessly about this. COVID-19 has been a sweeping devastation on the world. But I believe in the sovereignty of God to the point that I think God is uh, he's also affording us a tremendous opportunity because I don't know a time in my lifetime that people have been more uncertain about the status quo, been more uncertain about their own situation. And uh, boy, this is the time for simplicity in ministry and just have a gospel conversation with somebody. Look for a coffee shop, set at your picnic table in your backyard or front yard and invite somebody to talk. Man, I mean, uh, this boy. If we're gonna if we're gonna win the world, it's not gonna be because we organize it into eternity. We're gonna have it's not gonna work that way. It's gonna be when we open our mouth and share the good news. Wow, you know, Phil, I just hearing that, I feel like that was the missionary pastor all in one, just speaking to us so plainly and helpfully. Thank <laughs> you so much. That's uh, that was great, and uh, I want to echo that as well. Thanks for believing that even in difficult times, man, God's doing something and is up to something. I love to hear that. Mm. Hey, thanks for taking time today. Really hey, thank you, Todd. I, I thank you for this, uh, this avenue of being able to talk about these things. It's very, very appropriate. And I pray that it's encouraging. And I'm not, I'm not any super guy, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a super saint. I don't have, if there are five star people, I'm not one of them, but I'm one of those guys. That's one of God's plotters. Uh, you know, I'm just one of those that just kind of plods along and just keeps trying to do the, do the simple stuff the best that I can. And, um, so uh, I just pray that, that, that people would be encouraged that, you know, ordinary people can really make a difference in the, in the kingdom if they Amen. just give themselves to it. Amen. Phil, thanks so much. Uh, sure pray for you. Sure thankful for you and Grace Church. And let's continue to work together to see our city reached and uh, to reach beyond our city. Well, I thank you as well, Todd. And uh, you, you've certainly set a tremendous example yourself with the great work there at First Family. We Thank God for that church and the others that you've planted. So praise the Lord. We'll talk again soon, Phil. Thanks for your time today. God bless. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. To learn more about how to support this podcast and our partners, go to toddstyles.net slash podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app.